Artificial intelligence is one of the hottest topics in federal technology circles these days, and one federal executive who helps oversee the Technology Modernization Fund wants to see agencies embrace AI going forward. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me now. Justin, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? I'm very well as well. So what might we see out of the TMF when it comes to artificial intelligence? Yeah, we have seen the TMF invest $750 million in 45 projects across 27 federal agencies so far. Most of those have focused in areas like cybersecurity, zero trust, and customer experience is one of the more recent trends as well. But Sheena Burrell, the chief information officer at the National Archives and Records Administration, wants to see agencies start to propose more AI projects. She is a, one of the board members on the seven-member TMF board that provides funding recommendations and actually monitors the progress of projects. And during an event last week to celebrate the TMF hosted by the Alliance for Digital Innovation, Burrell talked about what she'd like to see out of AI and automation projects going forward. One of the things that I would love to be able to see more, and just as a federal government, to see is more artificial intelligence, robotic process automation, machine learning. Uh, as you have more generative AI that you know the American people are really excited about, they're going to want to see that in uh, the applications that they they interface with with the government. And I would love to be able to see more of those type of projects that come in. And again, that's Sheena Burrell, CIO at the National Archives and a member of the TMF board. And one thing she added is that these AI projects could have something of a user experience, customer experience, Experience type angle. Of course, you know, generative AI and chatbots and things like that certainly could see the intersection there with what the federal government does as far as services and websites and things like that. Yeah, well, she may get her wish because this comes as federal agencies are really starting to consider different AI projects and uses, right? Yeah, the uh, so agencies are really looking at this across the board and the Office of Management and Budget. We reported uh last month, earlier this month, rather, is circulating draft AI guidance that will tell agencies how to use and manage the technology. The Department of Homeland Security, for instance, just appointed a CIO, its CIO, to serve as its first chief AI officer. And DHS is using AI to do things like tracking fentanyl shipments and investigating child exploitation crimes and things like that. So there, there's a whole host of potential use cases. Other agencies are looking at how to use AI for things like processing FOIA requests and other big backlog type projects. And, and then, as I mentioned, you know, chatbots using generative AI are, are starting to come out as well. And the government uses chatbots. So you could certainly see this, you know, coming out in a whole different range of areas that the government provides services and, and does things in. And on the other side, there are some folks, though, that are saying, whoa, all right, let's take a breather here, because there are some efforts to potentially rein in the use of AI in government. Where do those currently stand? Yeah, so Congress is, of course, looking at, you know, a lot of different AI-related legislation. And in the Senate, uh, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Chairman Gary Peters is really spearheading legislation that looks at how the government approaches AI specifically. He and others have proposed legislation that would require agencies to notify individuals when they are interacting with or subject to decisions made using AI or other automated systems. 
And it would also require agencies to set up an appeals process that ensures there is human review of any AI-generated decisions. Peters has also proposed the AI Leadership Training Act that would ensure federal managers across the board actually understand how AI works. So, you know, earlier this month that the committee held a hearing about AI, Peters applauded how agencies are exploring AI but said they also need to make sure they avoid any unintended or harmful consequences. These guardrails are more important than ever. Federal agencies are inundated with sales pitches and technology demos promising the next big thing. And while the federal government must be forward-thinking, we also have to be cautious in procuring these new tools. And we must continue to work uh, past the initial purchase, testing, and fine-tuning our models to ensure that they are effectively serving the American people. And again, that's Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Chairman Gary Peters talking about how agencies should be approaching AI. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Now, we did start this whole conversation out talking about the TMF. That's the Technology Modernization Fund. Congress is now considering some changes to how the payments work with the TMF. What are officials saying about that issue? Yeah, you know, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee last week uh, advanced the Modernizing Government Technology Reform Act. It would extend the TMF board through 2030, but it would also make some changes uh, to tighten up how the program works. It would uh, specifically eliminate OMB's ability to provide agencies with a waiver that would give them more than five years to repay TMF loans and would also require the General Services Administration, which manages the TMF, to get money back from agencies to keep the fund operational through 2030. So, of course, the American Rescue Act gave some agencies more flexibility in how they can repay funds to the TMF. And we saw that that actually opened up how agencies started using the TMF a little bit. Sheena Burrell, the CIO at NARA, who we heard from earlier, talked about how that repayment flexibility has really enticed more agencies to seek investment from the fund. There were a lot of agencies that were very nervous to take advantage of the TMF because of the repayment. And how would they pay the money back? And when would the money need to be paid back? I think one of the big things that I'm seeing right now as more people or more agencies are making use of the TMF and the flexible repayment option, we're seeing more people who want to take advantage of that. And again, that's Sheena Burrell, the CIO at the National Archives and a board member of the TMF. As she said, the TMF is, you know, seeing more agencies getting creative with repayment options. So it will be interesting to see how that legislation in the House moves forward. And if it passes, whether it has an effect on how agencies look to use the TMF to fund different technology projects. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you so much, as always. All right. You're welcome, Eric. And you can find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer 
at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful so it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going. Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have, to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.